Hello, and thanks for returning to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Kyle Franz. Let's get right into it. You know, when speaking of Sand Hills, when Sand Hills opened, it was it was like a, a thunderbolt that, or a lightning bolt, I guess. There's no such thing as a thunderbolt, but a lightning bolt. You know, in the course of the history of architecture, it was a, tr- a definite turning point. I mean, it kind of made it, it was a corrective and it made observers say, you know, wow, this is what we've been missing. We didn't even realize what where we've been and, and what we've been missing. And then Pacific Dunes comes, and I've always argued that Pacific Dunes has had a greater legacy and a great, had a greater effect on architecture even than Sandhills, because Sandhills was remote, private. You could see it in a picture, but you couldn't go there. Whereas Pacific Dunes, when it would opened up, it was part of a resort. Everybody was welcome. Uh, you know, media was a little more advanced than it was the internet, early internet age or mid internet age. So pictures were everywhere. And it had more of an effect down the line with other architects and other firms who saw they, you know, because it was so accessible, they saw the bunker styles and they started to appropriate different elements of Pacific Dunes and uh, kind of spun off in, in kind of rip off ways, just, just like the stadium course at Sawgrass spurned a bunch of imitators. So Pacific Dunes had kind of that effect too, and really launched in earnest the quote unquote minimalist drive in, in architecture. Absolutely. But I, yeah. Absolutely. You but, know, I've always, but there's something I've always so authentic that, uh, about Pacific Dunes and, and it's, it's different than Sand Hills too, though. A lot of times they're correlated because they're sandy and dunesy and they, they broke, they shattered the mold. Um, I was, but I'm, you know, it's, you were you're so intimate with Pacific Dunes. What's the what's the essential difference between those two golf courses? And then we can talk about the legacy of Pacific Dunes as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're exactly right. You know, the only correlation really is the is is the fact they're both built on sand. You know, I mean, I've always looked at at uh, Sand Hills is is it's just such a it was like the perfect introduction for people to to see that style of architecture. I mean, Tom and Tom and and Bill had already done some really nice work, whether it was High Point for, for Tom or, or Stonewall, you know, Kapalua uh, for, for Bill. They'd, they'd really done some, some really great work, but it's such a, it was such a great leap forward in terms of, of naturalism, minimalism, and ground game architecture. You know, the bunkers, you know, I mean, Dave, Dave Axlin is just one of the most brilliant people in this industry, you know, uh, who was, you know, the senior associates for, for Corn Crenshaw, just such a great shaper and such a, a visionary for, for just twa- trying almost anything. And, um, you know, they did such a great job of capturing what it's like to live in the Sandos. You know, I, I spent two summers out there working at the Prairie Club and, uh, um, just building all those bunkers that look completely natural and completely uh, like all those sandy blowouts out there, you know, it was a huge departure. Uh, just the entire aesthetic of the property, you know, nothing is, is shaped or even looks shaped, much less overshaped. You know, uh, imagine what that property would look like if if, if Fazio had done it or Pete Dye had done it. You know, uh, small secular pot bunkers or, or, you know, the just sort of standard stuff that Fazio is doing in terms of, of, of more painting the frame of a golf hole as opposed to strategizing it. And that's really where the, where Sand Hills is such a, a huge moment is the, is all the holes have such great concepts. There's so much fun to play. Uh, the strategy is, is, is so stark and, and apparent, and apparent in a lot of cases. And, um, and it's just so much fun to play, you know, like that big diagonal tee shot of one or 16. You see little hints of, of Bill's um, styling that, that, you know, he got from, from working for Pete Dye, you know, the, uh, the propensity for using those big kind of, you know, uh, diagonal sort of tee shot carries like you get on a 16th hole, for example, or, right. or 18, you know. Um, but there's also just such, such great little introductions to, to what became minimalist architecture. You know, there's... There's holes where the the strategy is audio, obvious and it's and it's and it's great strategy, and there's also holes where there's a little more subtlety involved like that where you don't really know where the bunkers are exactly in front of you or you don't know exactly uh, um, how you should play it the first time too, but you learn how to, how to play it, um, and just the cool little visual tricks that they tried. You know, I think one of the, my favorite bunkers that I always go back to is 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 great for 
for mining ideas from is, is the is that big huge natural pit or at least I assume it's a natural pit. I can't remember for sure from conversations I've had with Bill or, or Dan Proctor or Dave Axon, but that big pit on the interior side of the dog leg on number eleven, for example. You, know, you have fifteen, ten, mm-hmm. fifteen feet uh, bunker. But from the tees, all you see is just that tiny little snippet of sand out there. You hardly even notice that it's there on the interior side of the dog leg. You don't realize how uh, how much of a disaster it is to hit in there until you play the hole for the first time. You know, I think 99% of other architects would have gone through and blown out that whole ridge in front of that bunker so you could see all the sand and uh, and make it very clear how deep and imposing it would be. It's just a, a great exercise and restraint to, to put that little visual effect in there. And it's and it's 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 teasing you all the time, you know. No matter how many times you play the eleventh hole at Sand Hills, you know you uh, you stand back in the tee. like I can hit it over that. This is not a problem because you're only seeing just that little wedge of it. You know in the back of your mind what's going to happen if you get in there, but uh, um, the it's just tempting you and tempting you. And that's 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 great art of the first order there. You know? I mean that's just, that's as good as it as it gets. But I mean the go- whole golf course all the way through through just great ground game architecture, great strategy. Um, but uh, really, really very restrained. But the nature of the sand hills is, is big sweeping dunes. You know, there's not a ton of smaller scale details and whatnot, um, like you would get on an old British links where, you know, uh, it's not the nature of sand hills uh, dune country to have a feature like uh, a little sharp mound like you see in front of the fourth green at St. Andrews, you know, where it's chest to head high sort of mound that's barely 15 to 20 feet wide, you know, it's just a tiny little ridge. And that's really where Pacific Dunes, I think, uh, the styling of Pacific Dunes kind of set, sets it apart. And that's where you get the big departure between the two is, one, is just the nature of having a, a coastal dunescape allows for the shaping to be much more aggressive and much more interesting and just fun, sh- fun shots like that. But also, you know, Tom's philosophy was... was Really, it seemed to me centered more around you know like cool fresh holes that w- weren't anything like the stuff at Sandhills. I mean, you can see a little bit of it in a hole like like number six with the uh, the the big front left deep bunkers and uh, the little ridge line green. There's a lot of seven in Sandhills and that, but for a hole like like the third hole, um, there there was really nothing. I, I can't think of anything still that, that that before that was quite like that with the big two pronged fairway arrangement and that little ridge line green and some of the interesting kind of uh, you know shots that you get like if you get on the wrong side of the fairway there's like this this little mound complex right through the guts of the green that you can always just kind of like aim at that and hope that well if you hit it a little too hard it's going to catch that it'll it'll hold it up there whereas the rest of the surrounds of the green kind of falls off and if you get into anywhere in the front right bunker that is the only goal is to try and use that little feature to keep you from running off the back into some uh some seriously bad ending and that's really you know that's there's nothing like that at sand hills you know uh um the the extra dimension of details is really what i think makes it a very very cool golf course a lot of smaller scale details a lot of places where you can kick it off of this contour, off to that contour. I think one of the most successful holes, especially having seen the hole in the dirt, is, is the, the 12 hole, where I, I don't think, I'm not going to give it away, but there's a lot more that's built there than I think probably people would, would realize. And, uh, um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of macro stuff that was, that was put in to get that to sit in there really nicely with that par 5 green complex, but the approach is, is just amazing. There's, there's just like a subtle tilt approach and a little spine that runs 50, 70 yards out into the, uh, the approach where from anywhere, whether it's a third shot or a second shot, you can aim at that, that little slope and that ridge with a draw, and it will curl shots all the way around this big, massive front-left bunker complex. You know, Again, there's a covert advantage to using the ground to, uh, to get balls to kind of curl to where you want them to go, um, especially if you get out of position on the hole. Uh, the, you know, if you get under the far left-hand side of the fairway, you really want to take a shot at it. And two, um, there's only one way to get it on the green. You're not carrying that that big, deep front left bunker and expecting a hole of the green. You've got to use that little uh, the little covert advantage that I was describing. And that's where I really think that 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 Tom's encyclopedic architecture or Lynx architecture uh, uh, genius shows through. Uh, you know. There's 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 some elements like that at Sandhills. You know, the approach of the ninth hole has some kind of correlation, but 
you'd only you would only ever actually play that shot i think if you really kind of wanted to uh in that case whereas you know tom really set up some of those strategies really nicely by being pretty aggressive about it you know like a big front front deep bunker like that you know so i think that that's that's really where the golf courses separate from from each other is is the stuff was just a little bit more simplistic at, at sand hills you know again uh, basic bare bone strategy you know like the diagonal sort of stuff and whatnot but there's also some really good ground game architecture out there but the willingness to uh you know utilize some of the smaller scale and, and more detail oriented stuff really takes pacific dunes to uh it was a nice it was nice nice jump forwards and then just in the same way friar said is a nice back and forth forward backwards uh you know just progressing the art back and forth it was really fun to watch you know the kind of the interaction and the respect between you know the architects you know to build the great stuff that they did you know uh sandals set a set an amazing bar pacific re-upped the ante and then friar said re-upped the ante again and and so it's you know so it went um so very very cool period of 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 architecture and and very cool to be entering the uh, the uh, the business at, at that point. Right. For sure. The, the second hole at Pacific Dunes is another fine example of that. I think one of the things that uh, is so cool about Pacific Dunes is uh, that you know hole like number two you got the little central bunker hazard in the fairway, but also a lot of different ways you can play that tee shot. You can play it easily up to the right and just throw an aerial shot in on the second shot and spin it off of some of the slopes within the green or you can play it out to the left and down in a little valley and you can keep play little low shots that'll uh uh keep the ball out of the wind and um it just depends on the uh the conditions a lot of the time and i think that's where where tom really started to think it's some cool and progressive areas is is allowing players to there was clear strategies but the player was allowed to really choose a strategy that was going to work work well for them not just dictating well you got to hit it over this side for a decent angle and you know you could play to your play to your own strengths and i think that that is a really nice progressive sort of uh element uh in the overall strategy of the holes that that even went to another another level from what bill and ben had been trying at uh at sand hills you mentioned orson wells before in citizen kane it, is pacific dunes tom doke citizen kane or, or you know because he never got or Wells was never as good as that again. He made some fine pictures and did some nice work, but that was that was his first was the best. You know, how would you rate Tom Doak as far as like career after Pacific Dunes? Did he ever reach that height again? Has you know, he? Think, he's still doing. I honestly, it. I honestly think Tom uh, he continues to progress in 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 ways probably even beyond the competition. You know, it's it's no uh, it's. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't say anything bad about Bill and Ben uh, that uh, to say that or Gil, but I think Tom's Tom's work continues to be very, very progressive. You know the fact that uh, uh, you know having done the loop, the reversible golf course. You know Terry looks like it, it's it's the golf course that I have seen the most since Friar said that has impressed me the most in terms of 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 detail work. You know, I mean it, it's it's flooring to see how cool the native dunescapes are that they did. Uh, and apparently a lot of that stuff from what I was told, you know, had to be cleared, trees, et cetera. Um, so a lot of that stuff had to be put back together. It's a pretty, pretty cool progressive effort on its own. And I, you know, I've always thought that, I've always thought that, that kind of moving into the reversible architecture um, experiment is something that we really need to do. You know, it's, what's better than two for the price of one? So, you know, Tom had mentioned uh, that he wanted to, to try that. I remember him saying that going back as far as Pacific Dunes or Barnacle. Um so I was ecstatic when he finally got the shot to do it. Um so I you know, I as 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 I as I joked in, in in some article or interview right around the period that it was being built is you know, I kinda looked at it as sort of like his Sergeant Peppers, you know, uh to you know, steal analogy from another great uh, artistic uh achievement, you know. So, uh, that's kind of the Beatles' high water mark in terms of where they really got as experimental as they possibly could, and it was complete departure from his uh, from their previous work. And I kind of look at the loop as kind of the same. A very I still haven't got a chance to see it. I was supposed to go up to the the company tournament a, a couple of years ago, but uh, unfortunately just couldn't make it because um, of an illness. But I'm I'm hoping to to knock that one off the list in the next next uh, next several months. Because um, I think it's just such a great, a great concept and so unique to do. I, I spent several months in St. Andrews in the winter of 2005, 2006, and I really studied the reversal element a lot. You know, obviously, well, 
it's not obvious. Not many people actually realize that the original the the old course could be played both directions. It was a reversible golf right. course, and it makes yeah. perfect sense. I mean, all those ridgeline green complexes play great from multiple directions, obviously. Um, and so I, I I made the joke a lot of the time when I lived there that I I probably had walked the golf course backwards um, more than anybody else since since the days of old Tom Morris. You know, I really studied that a lot and. And I would always joke to people, you know, you know, just golf course architecture and golf course architecture chats, you know, which course has the uh, the most holes you've never heard of. Well, it's pretty simple. It's the old course backwards. I mean, you think about playing back to the road hole green across the first and 18 fairways that direction. It works pretty good as a 300 and, you know, 50, 70 yard uh, um, par four. Um, and you think about playing back to the uh, – you know, the 16th green along 17, playing the other direction along the boundary line. It's pretty good stuff. So, so I've always been extremely excited about the, uh, the concept of uh, uh, the reversible stuff. And I think that, you know, I, I would love to try it myself someday. I mean, I've always, one of the things that I've always thought would be cool to explore, explore and experiment more, um, if and when I ever get a shot to do that, is, is working in that category. So, so I think that Tom has is, is, is continued to evolve in some in some in some really really cool ways. You know, uh, personally, my favorite of of all of Tom's golf course still is Pacific Dune. Um, so one one could easily say that. You know, uh, making the uh, the Orison Wells and Citizen Kane analogy. You know, when you when you get your first big shot, a lot of your best ideas are going to come out in, in in one place. But uh, you know, much like the Beatles, same thing. You know, they continue to progress and. Uh, and were every bit as good of a band when they when they broke up in in 1969-70 as they were, you know, when they'd started. But they they'd done all kinds of interesting things in between, and I see that a lot with with Tom, you know. Bringing up the Sgt. Pepper Beatles analogy is interesting because after that, I mean, that was really the beginning of the end. I think they got to the point when they were they had personality issues and they were going different directions. But I think they realized that there was a limit to what how creative they could be as a group. You know, when you when you break so many barriers and you're so innovative and everybody's copying you, you look around at some point and you say, I, that's it. That's all we've got. Right. <laughs> we've got to do something different. So the, the question is, w- at what point does modern architecture do that? I mean, wh- I feel like we've, as great as Tom and Bill are and as great as the sites are, it, it's, we're at the point now where it would be a lot more interesting to see different things. Sure. Uh, there are great sites all over the world that are that are near oceans and and lakes. They're dunesy. They're wild and natural, and and we love that. I mean, please give us that. But we have enough of that also at the same time. Sure. I mean, there's enough golf courses in the world. We don't need. Any, we don't even need any more golf courses. But if we're going to build golf courses, wouldn't it be? Int- I would love to see Tom get get a municipal course in the near a downtown area. And have to, that might be, I would think that would be just as interesting to him is to have to put some authorship into it. You know, instead of like just reading and reacting off of beautiful natural landscape, to really have to be, say, here's here's what I'm doing and then and then build it. I know he's done that before, but, yep. you know, I just wonder as an artist, if you get, if they're getting to that point when that's, that's not something that's going to be more interesting to do. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the, one of the, Absolute successes of the of the real Olympic course is is you know Gil Gil being put in that scenario. I mean, all three of them are are equal talents to each other. They really are incredibly gift, gifted guys. And uh, and you know, I mean, I think it's especially you know Gil's Gil's you know it doesn't take it doesn't take anybody uh, a lot of watching you know Gil on the golf channel to realize he's a really nice and mellow guy. You know, and uh, and it, that shows through in the in the nature of his architecture. And that's where I think that you know the Rio Olympics course came out so fantastic. It I just got to play it just a, a few months ago, which I'm sure some people will be surprised even here. Like there's been so much negative publicity and 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 whatnot regarding uh, everything around the Olympics down there, and, and it's Rio. Everybody always kind of needs a saga surrounding Rio. But the the yeah. absolute truth is the golf course <laughs> is in fantastic condition. It, it it turned out really good, and it's still doing really well it's 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 actually great and i would encourage anybody that listens to this to to get on the website get on facebook uh and uh or get on instagram and and check out photos of it it's in great condition 
it's, it's really going on quite nicely, and they're starting to gain some traction from a business standpoint. Tons of great like junior events and whatnot. Um, but that's where I think you know the the nature of of Gill's design is is really is is it is it gets more momentum and uh, you know I think I think it gets away from you know kind of the press you know again again everybody always needs kind of a saga in Rio so all the venues went through that period afterwards it was like well what are they going to do with all these things and uh, they're falling apart blah 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 well the golf, one thing that didn't fall apart is the golf course it's going great and. Uh, um, and Gill's design is is really fantastic for the for the everyday and average person. I think he did a, a fantastic job of walking the line between making the holes really cool and interesting for the professional level players on both sides, uh, both women's and men's. But what I really uh, enjoyed about going back and playing, having worked on the project, was uh, just how nicely it's all growing in over the last couple of years, and how how mellow and fun it is for the average player. I mean, I, I'm. I'm a person that got maybe as low as a four handicap or so during my college years, um, but I'd be lucky if I can get around at a 12 handicapper or or a 15 handicapper uh, style these days. So uh, the golf course is just really, really fun and playable, and it's a really fun golf course for the beginning level player. Both between, um, you know, we put in you know a few practice holes that they can that are just cool little par threes that they can try all kinds of cool, you know, link style shots and. Um, the and the golf course is really fun and playable, so that's really a great example of just what you you were alluding to. Is the uh, we need to need we need to do more projects like that, you know, projects and places where we can grow the game. And I was always equally as much excited about the possibility of doing a great golf course in South America as I was the Olympic course of it. Probably even more so with the former is that, you know, they didn't have any public golf courses in Brazil. It's right in the heart of the city. It's really easy to get to from anywhere in Rio de Janeiro. I mean, Barra de Juca is on the far western side of the city where you have two, two freeways basically come together just a couple miles away. So it's really easy to get to from Copacabana or... Uh, Ipanema, or just from 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 the central portion of the city. So it's it's a place where I think people will really be able to go and enjoy, whenever uh, whether whether they're South Americans or, or people from Europe and and North America, and and see some cool cool architecture because it is it became a famous place overnight because of the games. But the impact for 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 day to day golf in Brazil, uh, you know, it can't be overstated how cool of an opportunity. That, that is to, to build the first public golf course in in a country, you know. Um, so I, th- I hope that's something that that uh, I, I I have always felt badly that uh, between the Zika scare and the and the uh, the fact that again the press always kind of needs some kind of saga around uh, the wild and lawless place that is Rio de Janeiro. I've always felt bad that the golf course really didn't. It should have gotten a nice uh, period after the games of just of nice publicity, and nice press, and uh, they really are doing well. And uh, and and having that voiced around, a lot of people are always surprised when I when I say, "Yeah, it's, it's going great down there." Like, really? I didn't I didn't hear that. Um, I, I hope that uh, I hope that it that it has a nice lasting impact in that category because, in a lot of ways, I hope that that's that spurs more development of that kind in other places. You name it. You, you name it. I mean, there's there's so many great places around the world that that they got at least one really good site around a city where you could do a great public golf facility. Uh, that there's an opportunity to grow the game and, and have a lasting impact and give people opportunities. You know, they brought in you know underprivileged kids from all over the city to to try out the the the, the short course and, and get instruction and get out and try the big course. So it's something that I was always very passionate about and. Uh, and I hope that there's good reason to be passionate about right. it in the future. Speaking of sagas, uh, what was that like to be, you know, a, a 30-something young guy living in Rio for an extended period of time? Do you have any good stories from that? Oh, it was always entertaining, that's for sure. You know, I mean, I always make the analogy that, uh, you know, Rio is kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the United States during the late 1880s and 1890s. Um, you know, where it's like this, <laughs> It's this, this. Imagine that. Yeah, it's it's like this 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 country with incredible potential. And there's been a lot of you know studies that have suggested that they think that you know Brazil is going to become like you know this big big superpower over the next hundred years. The the depth of natural resources and everything that kind of goes with it. And uh, but it's kind of like the United States during that period. You know, you can 
You can pick like almost any year the panic of 18 and then end it wherever you want, you know, with a boom and bust economy. And, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of stepping onto the world stage as, as a, uh, as a, as a developing country. So there's no shortage of, uh, of great stories out of that, but it's also a country with incredible, incredible, or especially Rio, incredibly beautiful places and incredibly, uh, uh, wonderful advanced tourism and uh, it's phenomenal. You know, it's sort of it's sort of like a blend between South Beach and uh, and who knows where else in the world. It's just a, a wild combination. Yeah. You get get to see a little bit of everything. I mean, you know, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't want to go wandering into one of the favelas. That's for sure. I don't think it would last very long. And it wasn't a very big deal to hear some gunfire going up on going on up in those areas. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I mean, it is where it's nice in Rio is really genuinely one of the nicest places anywhere. I mean, uh, it gives South beach a run for it, for its money. Uh, so, so you, you managed to stay away from the, uh, the bad parts of town. I take Yeah, it. no, I, I, some of our guys, I remember they, they said they were going to go to some, some party, like some dance club right on the edge of, uh, Racina, which is the big famous favela. You can do like two, I don't know if you can now. It's got a little too crazy in Rio the last couple of years with the kind of dip they've had in the economy. But the uh, there was a period where uh, you could even take tours up into the favelas, uh, the shanty towns and whatnot. And uh, but I, I I was always far too conservative for that. I was well, I, w- I was more interested in hanging down hanging out down on the beach. So, but uh, but we did have, we did have a lot of fun there, and I, I I'll always be very very. Uh, very appreciative of Gil, Gil and Jim Wayne for the opportunity to have gone down there. It was it was a bit jarring at times early in the project because it was you know I've been lucky that I had worked on on really high profile projects before, uh, you know White Piners number two where everybody knew the project was going on and there was a lot of media attention for it. But um, you know Rio with with the challenges of of, of teaching you know Brazilian uh, you know. Building golf courses is something that's new to them down there, and you know, just just doing grading work and whatnot. It was it was pretty challenging, just getting the dirt moved around where we needed to a lot of the time. Uh, but uh, we worked with some great people down there that uh, that really uh, made it possible to uh, to get it done in in a timely manage, manner, even though it was challenging at times. You know, Neil Cleverly, the superintendent, uh, and some of the guys that we worked with on the the environmental side are now running it. Um, Carlos Favretto and, and Daniel Cornell. You know, they were really great guys. That uh, they they have a pride a pride in as well. It was fun to go back and and see all the great junior events and whatnot going on down there, and the pride that they have having gone through the whole process. Um, but it was unique to be on a project where, you know, uh, I was just telling the the story and, and joke the other day. There was there was times where there would be you know sort of interfighting about. You know, permitting stuff that was going on during the project, where the city and the and the state and uh, what have you was going on, and, and, and sometimes the fastest way to find out what was going on surrounding our own project was just to get on like Yahoo Sports or MSNBC Sports. I don't think I'll ever work in that in that setting ever again. It was a uh, pretty unique. You know, I really remember doing that as I there was something that was going on uh, permitting wise that. Uh, um, Nobody seemed to know quite what had happened in those preceding hours downtown uh, with the committee and whatnot, and uh, and so I was like, I'm just going to check the phone here and see if anybody's written a story yet. And sure enough, that was the uh, the case. So uh, um, it was a unique project to be involved with. So much light on it, and and such such big challenges and such uh, you know difficult you know hurdles to overcome. You know, it was uh, you know working with with people that had never built a golf course at all before, and uh, um, you know, they kind of looked at it a lot of time. Uh, we we jokingly called it uh, sort of like the the facenda facenda dose farm number two because that's how they kind of looked at it. So it uh it was a unique project, uh, but a great learning experience to do such a such a high profile project with such with such high expectations, but also uh, very uh, um, very notable challenges. So a tremendous learning experience. One of the ironies of your career up to this point is. You know, you've done such great work, and you've worked with the the masters of our age, and developed some of the most premium luxury golf products around the globe, as as you've just mentioned. But you're really the victim of your own success. I mean, the, these products turned out so good, they're so popular, they're so highly rated that it elevated the status of of Tom and Bill and and Gil to such a level that every 
great piece of land and every job that comes up now goes to them sure. and you know and you're sort of like you and and many other guys who are you know kind of in your category your generation are really knocking on the door and trying to get through and trying to get a big project like that but and you know it was built you guys built these courses and now you know it's there's sort of the product is being used to to sort of box you out on these very few projects that come along so so how do you break through that? I mean, what's the what's the next step? I know you're going to say I'm just going to keep doing my thing. I'm going to keep my head down and keep working. But what's your what's your prognosis for the golf world after Doak and Core and Hans have left the stage? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, the first thing is you really have to actually prepare yourself to to be an architect on your own. You know, I think I see I see it a lot a lot of times with a lot of the younger people that I work with in the industry is they tend to immerse themselves too much in the trivialities of the business or, or too much in the, uh, just the day-to-day life of it and what's kind of in front of them, where I've always, I've always really worked very hard on trying to establish my own vision and my own voice. Uh, and that's the, that was really one of the very first things that Tom uh, taught me in this business was that, you know, the, um, that you really, I, I, think he, I think he literally put that in an email to me, um, when we finished Pacific Dunes, I, I asked him for advice on exactly what I should do and how I should do it and where I should go. And, you know, Tom is such a, such, you know, nobody, nobody ever realizes because his, his writing has been so bombastic, uh, famously so, that he really is a very nice and humble guy. He is, you know, he was like, well, of all people to tell me where they should go with their lives, least of all me, he joked. But he went on to state that, uh, you know, the first and foremost thing is you really need to follow your own your own path and, and just figure out where you need to go to get yourself good opportunities. Um, but you need to have your own vision and your own voice in this industry. So, you know, I've really worked hard on, on, on trying to think about, well, okay, this is what I've I've enjoyed about the work that I have been a part of and what I've enjoyed of the work that Tom and Gil and Jim Wagner and, and, and Bill and Ben have done. But here's the areas where I'd like to explore. Here's, here's some of the ways that I think I could do some cool work and, and not just be repetition. You know, uh, Tom made the statement once, I can't remember where I read this, was that he felt that, you know, if somebody wanted a golf course like Pete Dye, um, who he'd come up working for, that uh, they would just hire one of his sons. So he really did have to have his own vision of where he wanted to go. And fortunately, I think just from the nature of this conversation, you probably gather that, you know, for for me, I'm a person that really does appreciate not just architecture, but uh, but great art in any medium, you know, whether it's it's music or, or film. Um, and the people that have really, really progressed it. I've always admired people like, like Lennon and McCartney or or Cobain, you know, or, or, uh, the guys in, in, uh, uh, the red hot chili peppers, you know, the, the, the artists that have really advanced music at the nineties was a wonderful period for music and really, uh, really advanced the craft with, with all alternative music or in hip hop and, uh, um, and, and other music or, or whether it was in film, you know, like the, the, the quirky, bizarre, uh, uh, films of, of uh, you know, like, like Pulp Fiction and whatnot. These are all films and, and art that, that really has, has progressed, progressed the mediums for, you know, uh, whether it's something like the, 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 the trippy three, three, uh, three different uh, storylines going off on a, on a movie like Pulp, Pulp Fiction. That was right underneath everybody's nose to try something like that. You know, I mean, there's probably, it was arguably the, the best film of the 1990s, you know, uh, um, and yet, there's a lot of correlations between it and Citizen Kane. You know, I mean, it's a Citizen Kane was progressive for being a flashback, back and forth movie. You know, a lot of times in great art, the 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 ideas to progress it forward are right underneath everybody's nose. You know, there's just cool ways to advance and try just little different wrinkles and little different things. Whether it was you know like like with alternative rock music, you know, like like Nirvana's attempts to do really slow and really fast music all in the same four minutes of a of a song, you know, a lot of the time, you know, if you're going to come up with some really cool progressive ideas, it, a lot of the time it's right under your nose. And that's really what Tom and Bill and Ben and Gil have done. You know, uh, a lot of their ideas, you know, I mean, uh, Bill, Bill says that, you know, he said it a couple of times to be in the field and walk up and look at a bunker that we were building. And he's like, that looks pretty good. It looks like a Tom Simpson sketch, you know, Tom Simpson being the great architect and writer from the uh, from the early 1900s, you know, a lot of their their ideas are just simply blending 
um, great architecture from from the past and mirroring it to the future. And so that's where I've always tried to what can I do? What can I think of this category? It's, it's a little bit different and a little bit uh, you know kind of uh, kind of offbeat and cool and and. And it matches to really where we stand from a technology standpoint and an architecture standpoint today, which, you know, as, as, as technology progresses and the, the public's um, acceptance of, of the styling of architecture progresses, it gives you opportunities. You know, getting back to the conversation on Sand Hills and, and Pacific Dunes, you know, it was almost inconceivable you know, when Shadow Creek opened in 1980 or 90, whatever, in the early 90s. So when I think about those projects like Victoria National and the stuff that was the accepted architecture for the period, like that's where you really have to hand it to, to, to Bill and Ben or, or Tom. I mean, <laughs> doing, doing something like Sandals where we're just going to dig a big hole out of these natural dunes and that's just going to be the bunker. Uh, it was, it was pretty, uh, uh, it was Pretty uh, off kilter stuff. Pretty off kilter stuff. So um, you know uh, that's the way you got to look at it. It's just find cool ways where you can explore and and learn from from the great old architects of the past, and hopefully you get the opportunity someday to uh, to give some of it a shot. Um, but it starts with it starts with really preparing to do it. Yeah, it definitely seems like like right now there's the opportunity for the art of golf design to go in a, in a slightly different direction. And and the problem is, first of all, it's it's building golf courses is hard enough. So, you know, you're confined by the, the realities, the budgets, the land, the opportunity, the client's wishes, all that. But also in the past, it seems like every time there is, you know, in the last 40 years, somebody who moves in a different direction, a radical way, it just doesn't work. You know, right. you think of like Desmond Muirhead or, you know, anybody who's trying to do yep. Pete, Pete Dye's stuff that wasn't Pete Dye, you know, it's just a, it's a failure, you know. We're, so golf, you were kind of limited in this in this scope, but you bring up a good point about art. It, you know, artists, painting artists, sculptures, poets, writers are really n- never trying to go back to the past. I mean, they're always musicians are always trying to trying to you know they're influenced by the past, but they're always looking for a new thing, a new way to express themselves. That's what the Beatles were doing, you know. That's what you mentioned in film. Uh, you know, you can be grounded in, in classics and know, know the directors of the past, but, you know, and Pulp Fiction wasn't revolutionary. It was, it's based on, you know, Kurosawa and, and other, like, right. established themes, but it's assembled in a different way. I don't see that impulse in golf. I know I know you said that, you know, you see that, that Bill, you know, would tell you that it looked like a Tom Simpson bunker, but I don't really see a willingness at the top levels to really break from the past and really push forward. And maybe it's because there's, there's so many ways it can go wrong, sure. but I just don't know that there's that, that impulse. Do you, th- do you see it amongst your, you know, the generation behind the guys that are getting all the work right now? You know, I, I think that, uh, I think that, I think that everybody arrives at a comfort zone in, in, in any art form, you know? And I think that, you know, I mean, obviously those guys have been at it for, for a long time. So, uh, you know, so you wouldn't expect them to be attempting to reinvent the wheel at this point, you know, and uh, that's why that's why I think it it will be cool and good when younger guys like myself get a shot at doing some work from from scratch. But it all comes back to like how how you have to approach any great art form. You can't just try anything. You can't just go do anything and expect it to be good. You know, there's a great saying that just because it's different doesn't mean it's good. Uh, Desmond Muirhead being the, the prime example. you got to find ways to, uh, you know, again, a lot of the times when somebody does something that's really cool and interesting and progressive, a lot of the time it was right under everybody's nose, right in front of me. It's like, huh, why didn't I think of that, you know? Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's all about just preparing and, uh, and, and not just being, not just kind of going along for the ride, really, really thinking about what you'd like to do and how you'd like to do it and, and, and how to, uh, and how to implement it without it being so jarring that, uh, or, or, or even jarring at all. Uh, you know, that's, that's the greatness of, of something like Pacific Dunes is, I mean, when you compare that, I can't remember what some of the other really good golf courses that, that opened up in that two-year period were uh, that were not by, by the big three, the obvious choices. And, um, um, but they were nothing like it. But, the, you know, 
Tom found ways, Gil found ways, Bill found ways to, to take their, their progressive ideas, um, um, fuse them with some stuff from the past, but uh, there's really there's some stuff that in, in all of their work that it isn't quite like anything that, that anybody had done exactly before. Um, but all finding ways to, to, to do cool work um, while making it palatable to, to the average person. You know, they, that, was, that was the great thing about the Beatles is, is they, they, they progressed in some cool and interesting ways, uh, but never without being able to uh, communicate their ever-increasingly sophisticated ideas to, to their, their standard and general listeners. You know, they, uh, they were able to communicate those ideas in ways that, uh, that it wasn't too complicated or, or uh, um, too, too outlandish. And that's what, that's what Tom and Bill and Ben and Gil have, have done. You know, I mean, uh, uh, there's, a, there's an enormous leap forward between Sand Hills and, and Friars. A lot happened there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so you've got to be prepared and, and, and you've got to have your own ideas. And, and you gotta, but most importantly, you've got to understand how to uh, convey those, again, increasingly different or sophisticated ideas to, uh, to uh, golfers that are, that are not used to seeing anything different. Yeah. Jeff Mingay made a comment recently about Sand Hills and Pacific Dunes, and he said, essentially, there was no intent by Core or Doak to try to make those golf courses different, or difficult, I should, excuse me, difficult. Correct. Which was a real break which is kind of a radical concept in a way because, you know, through the 80s and 90s, you know, that was sort of a mandate or it was subconsciously or consciously that was the way the uh, our evolution of architecture was had kind of culminated in like it's got to be, it's got to be a championship, it's got to be difficult and all that. But that that de-emphasization of, diff, of trying to make a golf course differently has, has really played out and carried on and you see it now, you know, you, the these at least in this genre, this vernacular of, of sand-based architecture has really opened everything up and, you know, there's no emphasis on making it difficult. It almost seems now is the right time to get to introduce, to keep on the music theme, like a little more punk rock, you know, kind of, kind of make something that's in your face a little bit more. Yep. We don't have to go back to the, to the tropes of the 80s and 90s with bulkheaded water features right. and, you know, steep-faced bunkers and all that, but something that's just a little more assertive something that says you know grabs you and holds your attention and says you know you I'm a golf course you got to play me you know do, do you is that something that that you're sensing as well or does that absolutely concept think, appeal to absolutely. you absolutely i think the, the the public's aptitude for for ground game architecture is is night and day compared to what it was 20 or 15 years ago you know uh um it was non-existent, basically, through the, the 80s and 90s period of architecture. Uh, yeah. Nobody really talked about that as really being the, uh, the driving force behind their architecture. And, and you hit the nail on the head with the, with the, um, with the difficulty uh, element of, of, of architecture. You know, they were not true. They were trying to make golfers more fun to play. You know, I have a tendency to speak in architecture. Or on like on a scale of ten in terms of complication, more ten, you know. But at its bare bones, that's really what it was. It was just supposed to be fun, playable architecture, play it on the ground again, and and have some fun out there. Um, not not trying to make it overly difficult for everybody. And I think that I think that's really probably one area where you know I'd I'd mentioned before on on another podcast that I that I like to explore more is because of the changes in technology, it's really made it very difficult. We built great ground game stuff, um, but a lot of the time it's been very difficult to keep it from almost being dated the second that it opens up because of the advances in technology happening at the same time. You know, uh, um, whether it's the clubs that people are coming in with or the fact that, uh, you know, the scaling is something that worked really well to try and encourage people to bounce a shot in uh, really don't work as well because of the fact that they're coming in with that many less clubs. You know, um, I mean, I there's a bunch of different ways that I think would be, you know, really interesting to try and get people to think more in terms of ground game architecture uh, than even even we are now. You know, just more fallaway greens, more different, just different arrangements. We don't need to get too deep into into stylistics and elements and theoretics, but you know, I mean, uh, a lot of it is just getting the scaling to work out right for for where we stand today and with modern technology. You know, if uh, you know, there's a I can't remember who I was talking to about this. Maybe Rand Morrison from Golf Club Alice just recently. But you know, I mean, if you if you build a, a green like the the famous 13th at at Presswick, you know, C. Hedrick is the name of the hole. The t- 
tiny, tiny little green complex. If you build that, uh, you know, 10 to 20 percent too big, um, it kind of kill, kills the effect of wanting to try a ground game shot in. Whereas it's the, you know, in the in the right setting with the right club, it's that's the only way to hold that green with some kind of interesting sort of running shot. Um, so, so a lot of it again is you know it's just reacting to where where architecture stands today and, and exploring some some interesting areas to to maximize variety and whatnot. And um, like I said, there's 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 more than uh, there's there's always some interesting way to keep keep improving the craft to get it to to you know be the best it can be for the for the period that we live in. I think it's going to be a, a major moment in architecture the first time that that you or some of your companions of you know of your generation get that first really great 18 hole you know notable original project you know i think that's going to be you know cuz up to this point you guys nobody's had really had a real chance on the same level that you know Tom and Bill and and Gil have had so that's going to be a, a big moment in architecture the first time that happens yeah yeah hopefully that well, hopefully we'll see some. Somebody, yeah, just personally, I'd like to see a little punk rock, <laughs> right. get some Ramones yeah. going. Well, and I mean, you've seen. I mean, you know, you and I have had enough chats where you've seen, you know, sketches and whatnot of things that I would like to try and do. And you know, I mean, again, it's out there. There's there's cool ideas that can can be had here that uh, that aren't just playing to the last you know ten years of uh, of what everybody's been building. You know, it's you know, yeah. there's there's all kinds of fun things you can try to really. Uh, um, you know, again, push the craft forward. I'm ready. I'm ready. I know a lot of other people are ready ready for a, a little bit of something different as well. Um, one of the things I love about Midpines is the intimacy of the golf course, the, the way you can walk through the property and all of a sudden you come out at another place and you're like, oh, here I am. You know, oh, there's that hole. I just played that hole. You know, it's a very great crisscross routing it's it's interactive uh, i love i personally love that about golf when a golf course can deliver that that feeling of sort of being lost and then you, your your position is revealed and then you duck into another place and you come out again where would you rate that routing on a scale of one to ten mid pods yes uh, i i rate it pretty high it's a pretty cool way to attack a very complicated piece of land you, you got a swamp on one side you've got a uh um a roadway in the edge of the property on the other and some really st- Deep terrain in, in certain places out there. I, I I think it's one of my favorite routings. Really comfortable, really nice to walk. Really uh, attacks the landscape in a lot of different ways, and it's uh and it just has ambiance. I mean, that's the thing that everybody always says about Mid Pines is, is they just love the ambiance of the property with the with the famous old inn and the uh, and the beautiful kind of sweeping views across the the valley. It's it's a really neat place, you know. Um, so I, I'd rank it pretty high. It's it's among my favorite favorite Ross routings, and but I mean that's that's part of what I I look for and I pursue in in every one of my my uh, consulting jobs, whether it's whether it's there or Pine Needles is is a completely different routing, even though it's across the street where most of the uh, design of the course is is cemented in the fact that you're almost always hitting the top of a ridge, and if you hit a good t- solid tee shots. You're going to wind up with some pretty short clubs, and if you don't, you're going to be hitting some long ground game shots the the, uh, the whole way, and that's where I really think it is one of my favorite courses. Um, Minicata, you know, it's it's a it's a great property looking out over Lake Calhoun in the west part of the city, um, but again, the topography that I was describing earlier, this really bizarre wild glacial till that makes for these huge up and downs in the property in places. Um, Ditto that for for Woods Hole Golf Club, a place that I work at out on on Cape Cod, which has beautiful waterfront, but it is one of the wildest pieces of topography that uh, that I've that I've ever seen or, or seen a golf course routed on. A lot of like very quirky sort of English countryside elements. Uh, you know those great courses that you see in the in the middle parts of the country that that fly under the radar in the UK. Um, so that's something that I really really love about that property. It's really been a, a an absolute joy to work on the. Uh, the uh, the master plan for on the same complete opposite end of that you know country club of charleston is a uh, is a property that's by and large it's classic low country very low and flat and goes right to the edge of the salt marsh but it has this amazing couple of holes that are that are defined by topography that just just happens to be there it's uh they were originally sort of batteries and forts during the civil war and and uh, Revolutionary War. In fact, we've been trying to figure out whether they were actually part of fortifications that were built during the defenses of, of Charleston during the Revolution. It seems 
most likely that's the case. We found some evidence that it is. But by this time next year, I really think that, that everybody is going to recognize the 11th hole at Charleston is like this really cool uh, uh, household name style par three for, for Southeast golf. You play on a tee that was one of these, these old fortifications across to this classic reverse Rodan um, uh, green complex that sits 15, 10, 15 feet up in the air on one of these other old fortification batteries, and it is a brutal hole. It doesn't get much more difficult than, than that. Um, I had heard of the holes the whole f- years ago before I had ever even gone there from Dan Proctor, who I'd mentioned earlier, one of the, one of the old guard associates from Corn Crunch. He's like, you got to go see this hole there someday. And... Uh, um, it's a really, really unique. It's a really unique hole and a really unique uh, uh, section of the property that I think you know. Again, during the Women's Open next year is really going to separate itself as a as a pretty cool southeastern hole. It's already famous for the for the among the players that play in the Azalea down there, which is a big amateur tournament among college players and whatnot. But uh, you know, just a unique property, little ditches in places, and um, um, but a, a great ambiance right there along the salt marsh where you're looking out over. Charleston Harbor and uh, and back towards the city, um, and then you know there's some other places where I'm working at that uh, I think have an amazing amount of potential, and are in the same boat, just really unique uh, and and great properties for for the reason. I, I work at a place called Haverhill Country Club in in northern Massachusetts, literally right on the border between New Hampshire and and Massachusetts. You can putt back and forth between the two states on the ninth green, but a really beautiful rolling piece of property with some really beautiful little brooks that kind of run through the property and uh, um, just great native grasses. Um, you never guess that you're right in the heart of, uh, of the uh, Boston extended metropolitan area because the, most of the property is surrounded by this big, dense, beautiful forest. And uh, so a really, really neat old place. It's a Styles of Anclee course uh, with a great routing and, again, just great bones. Um, so, so those are the kind of places that, that I'm looking for, places with, with uh, great atmospheres. The club is really excited and interested in, in improving, and, and they're all in different categories. You know, in the case of a Minicotta club, it is already one spectacular and, and great old Ross, Ross, Bendler, and Watson course. It is really, really good, and it's just a joy to be out there. You know, Ron Pritchard had already done nice restoration work on it in years past, so a lot of the things that I suggest and I work with them on are, are just editorial. You know, uh, there's this really cool, unique uh, uh, quarry complex in the middle uh, of the property that Donald Ross had mined a bunch of, uh, of sand and material from to, to build a green complex. And uh, so we restored that a couple of years ago. It's just this fantastic backdrop uh, behind uh, one of the greens. Um, uh, it looks completely different from, from anything else on the property. Most of it is just standard kind of rock-style bunkering and very well-preserved. Uh, but then you have this one almost like sandhills-looking feature uh, that uh, that was, you know, again, it's part of the original golf course, and, you know, Ross kind of designed it around it after they built it just to give uh, this cool, memorable backdrop on a, on a hole that you would see all over the property. Um, and sure enough, it's kind of it's kind of had that impact. You know, they had the the senior amateur there last year, and uh, one of the uh, one of the volunteers did this wonderful uh, uh, aerial video uh, drone footage of the property, um, and really highlighted that section. It was in the vast majority of the shots. So you know, just subconsciously, it has that that kind of impact. And uh, you know, that's where you get into kind of cool you know, quirky architecture elements that you don't expect to see on, on other golf courses that I really, I really jump on and, and try and thrive doing is, uh, you know, um, you know, again, just a random and weird, weird quarry feature in the middle, middle of a property that, uh, um, isn't, isn't like what you'd expect to see on a, uh, on a, uh, uh, a parkland golf course. And that's the stuff that a lot of the times, unfortunately gets missed or is, is glossed over on, on, restoration projects um around the country is they tend to go through through the more for the more cliche elements that you cliche elements you expect to see but they end up missing or cutting out of the budget the kind of cool quirkier sort of stuff that uh um that uh that really was the hallmark of what the original architects were trying to do to make it memorable and different and different from uh their competition in in the in the neighborhood uh speaking of things that you'd look for I know you have a lot of ideas, original ideas that you someday like 
to implement. Let's pretend that I am a, a wealthy investor and I want to build a golf club and, and I'm going to hire you to build it. But I'm going to say, Kyle, you have almost unlimited budget, but I want you to pick out the site. We'll go anywhere in the U.S. Keep it to the U.S. Do you have any, where would you build that course? What do you, where do you, is there a part of the country that, that you kind of envision your ideal course to be? Hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know if there's a, an ideal. Um, I mean, there's, there's pieces of land that, that, that I saw when I was in the Nebraska Sandhills that were shocking. Like, imagine, like, doing Sandhills next to this massive lake. Uh, like, imagine doing, like, a property like that. That's one area that, uh, that I think it would be fun. I think there's really one great, great course left to be built in the Sandhills. Uh, and it's, it's along one of those massive lakes that they have in the, in the central Sandhills. Uh, there's a property that I looked at when we were at the Prairie Club that – Unfortunately, we had the best timing ever on it, 2008. So you can imagine how far that discussion went with potential uh, investors and whatnot. But, uh, um, you know, that would be a very fun place to work. But, you know, I mean, uh, I, I, the low country down here uh, where you have an opportunity where you really have to be creative and, and create from scratch and find some interesting ways to do it without the work being, uh, you know, excessive or, or silly, you know, um, um, would be something that I think would be very, very exciting to do or Florida, you know, on a very flattish piece of land where again, you have to build some really cool, smaller scale features and great classical stuff. You know, we're not talking about, you know, uh, the kind of land over, over taxing and, and building and shaping that, that, that has been so prevalent in recent decades, but finding cool ways to do classical style architecture in flat setting places on, on good soils, I think would be a lot of fun to do. Um, but you know, I mean, it's a big country out there. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of great places to, uh, to work. You know, I, there's some places in, um, I mean, growing up and growing up in Oregon, there was, uh, there's some places that, that I thought would be really, really neat to build a golf course in the mountains of Oregon, the Cascades, where you have these big, la- huge, large lava fields um, that, uh, you know, three, 5,000-year-old volcanoes and whatnot had, had created. But you're in the mountains in Oregon where you have big, beautiful views of, uh, of uh, you know, the mountains. And then there's been, there's been some courses that have, that have kind of dabbled in that a little bit in the Bend area, um, you know, the Sun River Resort area, but nobody's ever gone fully into the really difficult places to build. You know, I think that Tethero um, certainly touched on that a little bit, um, or not necessarily difficult to build, but but inching up towards the areas where you really get the full effect of that style. You know, I mean, there's there's areas that I just jump on off the top of my head sitting here thinking that where you get really spectacular mountain views and uh, really bizarre landscapes, you know, really huge, like, lava fields and whatnot. Um, but also the soils are pretty sandy up in those areas. You know, there's some, there's some sandier terrain and, uh, you know, it'll be short season sort of stuff. But um, I, I, something that I've, I've kind of come to expect in my career is many times uh, uh, there has been a project we've been working on where there was an even better piece of land uh, just within – a 20 minute drive away and it was a like a world-class piece of land so um so they're out there there's all kinds of of cool and interesting places to work in this country and um um so i i i've always felt like one thing that i could i could be valuable at as as an architect is almost being involved with with clients right out of the gates before they they begin the land uh selection process um, and just just throwing ideas at them to help them with that. You know, that's something that's become a little bit more common. You know, with with Bill and Ben and and, uh, and Gil, you know, they've told me stories about that where a client just simply wanted help finding where to start to begin with. And I think that's something that that we should probably be a little bit more proactive with in uh, in the coming decades is helping clients to 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 branch out into some interesting uh, interesting landscapes. But they're out there everywhere. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I don't know if whether it exists or not, but I would think it has to be someplace out there. If you if you tied one or two or three land, pieces of land together, you could do some sort of really cool uh, uh, property on on the main coast or somewhere somewhere in New England that that nobody's quite nobody's quite got there yet. You know, um, 
I'm in Cabo. Okay, so you so you went Sand Hills, Low Country, Oregon Mountains, New England. <laughs> got a lot of territory. There. You've got a lot of yeah. you've got a lot of ideas, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, there's 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 some dunes in other areas of the country that it's surprising to me nobody's taken a shot at it yet. Uh, there's there's some really big areas of very cool dunes in the uh, in the United States that are very close to some large population centers. So I'm surprised nobody has taken a shot at it. Yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, I don't think anybody knew that northern Wisconsin had that right, kind of sand right. sandy dunes yeah. area. But yeah, you know, I mean, uh, getting back to the previous conversation, I think that's part of part of progressing the art form is is really genuinely looking at some landscapes that aren't anything like what what has been common you know uh, i mean rock creek that uh that doke did in in montana certainly a nice uh certainly a a nice departure from a lot of his other work and a really great incredibly beautiful place I mean, the mountains are are spectacular there so i think i think there's some mountain landscapes especially that we should be you know trying to trying to find the right piece of land and especially you know the the pacific northwest and and, and some of the other areas of the rockies there's some landscapes that nobody has quite quite taken a shot at yet. Like I know some areas where just in dunes alone, uh, there's there's some there's some dunes out there where it's completely uh, different different landscapes from what what has been built in the Nebraskan Sandhills and, and Kansas uh, that uh, that are even in that region where where you get some great mountain views and whatnot. But you know, again, it's a it's a big world out there. There's all kinds of of, of different landscapes and uh, and you know, while while there's as you said. There's there there is a point where the uh, the uh, the sand dunes business model uh, is is can become a little bit played out. It takes quite a bit for that, but you get the idea. I mean, there we should be looking at some cool and different different landscapes out there. Right. Yeah. What's the best place in the country to watch a college football game? <laughs> Oregon State, of course, where I went to school. <laughs> no. Not the last couple of seasons, but. Uh, um, I, uh, I got a chance to go to the Notre Dame and NC State game. Uh, Kevin Robinson and uh, John Jeffries and Dave Bobas, the Pinehurst uh, maintenance guys, uh, were nice enough to ask me if I wanted to tag along for, for the game up there. It was a heck of a lot of fun, that's for sure. So Notre Dame, okay. Give us a uh, last question here, Kyle. Give us the uh, capsule of what we can expect out of Oregon State this football season. <sighs> Oh man, I don't even know if I can. I, I haven't gotten that far ahead. We're we're ranked number one in the uh, in the baseball polls and in uh, um, and just made it the super regional. So I haven't gotten that far ahead yet. I'm uh, I'm still excited to uh, hopefully have reason to go out to Omaha here in in a few weeks. It's been a long time since I've been out to the Sandhills, so uh, I, I I feel like it's a very good uh, uh, two two pronged trip for me to make it to my first College World Series since. I was in the UK studying golf courses one of the years um, that Oregon State won the championship and then was busy with a Cal Club project uh, for Kyle Phillips um, in San Francisco the next. So hopefully I'll get a shot to go back out there again. But, uh, there, yeah, rep the Pac-12, Oregon State. Go Beavers. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. All right. Kyle, do you feel good about this? Did we cover everything? I think I think we did. Yeah, um, I think we I think we covered literally every every chunk of it. We we talked for a long time, so we might be uh, maxed out. We might be we might be maxed. I know we could go on for another right. hour, but I think we should cut it off now. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll we're save good. that for another time. Yeah, good talking to you, bud. Thanks. As a lot. always, as always. It's funny to see Kyle play with his old equipment. I mean, his clubs—they're not even like cool equipment like hickories or persimmon they're just these old kind of beat up mid-90s old clubs but he means it he is a purist there was another person who had the like the new tailor-made twist face technology driver and kyle grabbed it and looked at it and just this wave of disgust just kind of flowed over him you could just tell how sick it made him feel just looking at this at this piece of like unbridled runaway technology (laughs) I like talking to that guy. Uh, Real quick, let's get this out of the way. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or Google Play. And uh, more important, or more interesting to me at least, is leave some feedback. You can go to feedtheball.com and leave some comments. You can go to iTunes and leave a star rating and and even uh, type out a little something there. I know it's hard to do. Uh, I don't do that. I think I'm going to start. But uh, if you do that, that'd be cool to help me out. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at feedtheball. You could find Kyle on Twitter as well at Kyle France Golf, and he's on Instagram, but I won't try to tell you his name there. Just do a search for him. And just on a personal note, I fell in love with Mid Pines. I don't know 
if you've never been there and you're in the Pinehurst area, that is a absolute must play. I actually have it from just from a personal standpoint, not a tournament aspect or a strategic golf course aspect or anything like that, but just from a way that I connect to it. I have it I have it right on the same level as Pinehurst number 2. It's just uh, as we talked about it, it's a little more intimate. The aesthetics are beautiful. There's just a vibrancy to the golf course. Some really great Donald Ross green complexes. Every green is sided naturally. It's a nice, tight property, a great walk, as we talked about. Uh, just a charming golf course. As I said on Twitter once, it could be my forever course. Play that if you're in the Pinehurst area for sure. And then this, I just and I just thought of this. It's uh, appropriate and absolutely nothing, but I live about a mile, mile and a half from Eastlake, or should I say TPC at Eastlake. Um, and Kyle would be the perfect person to go in and just overhaul that golf course. You know, in the absence of new properties, new designs, virgin territory from scratch builds, until that kind of thing comes his way, he'd be the perfect person to go into a property like Eastlake and just completely retool it with all the knowledge that he has of Donald Ross. I wouldn't say restore. I don't know what that would look like. I'm not sure it's worth restoring, but to go back and just strip everything down, strip away what's there now, which is basically just a corporate tournament golf course on a beautiful property, beautiful historic property, Bobby Jones's home course, and infuse it with an interpretation of a Donald Ross design with that kind of mid-pines, Pinehursty, uh, southeastern U.S. look, and go in and just rebuild it with that aesthetic it would just it would mean so much to, for that golf course to to look more like it looked in the 1920s it could be such a better place than it is uh Kyle would be great for that i would totally recommend him for that if anybody asked me as as well as maybe a few other people that are really well versed and comfortable working in the mode of Donald Ross a few of them who've even been on this podcast but that's not going to happen <laughs> they seem to be pretty happy over there the way the way things are going oh well but thanks for Kyle Franz hope you guys enjoyed that long conversation I really appreciate you tuning in each episode and supporting the podcast. Thanks to the Sundogs. That's it for now. Until next time, cheers. Instead of-